Well, good morning. It is uh, uh, July Sunday and hot and uh, that time of the year when uh, even in a COVID-19 world, uh, folks are trying to figure out uh, how to get some vacation times in and folks are squeezing those in as they can and adjusting to the opportunities around. But even if you don't get to, to travel anywhere this summer, what I know is there's a trip that almost every one of us takes. It's a guilt trip, right? It's that guilt trip, that, that trip we don't sign up for, yet we all seem to go on. In fact, is I'm convinced that many of our fears are rooted in guilt. Guilt over our past. Guilt over things that we said or didn't say, did or didn't do. And it feeds so many other fears, a fear that I'll be found out, that if I'm found out what I did, I'll be rejected by others, or I'll be retaliated uh, for what I've done, or maybe God will judge me. But here's what I know. Satan wants to keep you and I focused on our past so that he can distract us from God's work in the present and God's plans and purposes for us in the future. God has a different agenda. He doesn't want us to operate out of a fear of our past, but a freedom, a freedom based on his love and his grace toward us. John, one of that inner circle of three disciples who walked so closely with Jesus, wrote of this freedom that comes from, from grace and love in that first letter that we know as 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, a God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God wants us to operate out of, a, out of a freedom, a freedom born of his love and his grace toward us. But the problem is many of us don't operate that way. When it comes to the, the reality of, of our guilt, we, we come up with many ineffective ways of dealing with it. And let me just suggest a few to you. They're all going to start with B, so let's call this plan B. This is not a good plan B, all right? One of the ways we tend to try to ineffectively deal with our guilt is we bury it. We, we try to, to bury it, and we do that kind of in, in different shades or different flavors. Sometimes we try to bury our guilt through minimizing it, through minimizing it. It's just no big deal. It's not that big a thing, and, and I don't want to feel guilty about it, so I just say it's not that big of a deal. I try to minimize uh, my, my rebellion 
rebellion, minimize uh, my sin, minimize my guilt. And oftentimes, minimizing is accompanied by rationalizing. Rationalizing that I try to say, you know, listen, it, it can't be that big. It can't be that problem. I'm just going to not deal with guilt because after all, everybody's doing it. Or I rationalize it by saying, you know, I've done this, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I never did this or that. And so we, we compare ourselves with somebody who is always worse than us. Another flavor of, of bearing is compromise. Compromise, that, that we, we begin to kind of redefine or try to say, well, I don't want to feel guilty over this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of not declare it sin anymore. It's been said that uh, commit a sin twice and it won't seem so much like a sin, that we begin to kind of walk in this way and we try to kind of bury our guilt. But the problem is, it never works. It never works. The proverb says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. I feel like maybe I can bury it for a while, but it doesn't stay buried. David in the Psalms talked about, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Burying guilt doesn't work. And when I've, I've thought about this for myself and taught on this through the years, one of the word pictures that's been helpful to me is, have you ever had like a beach ball or something and you, you, you tried to push it underwater? And maybe you tried one hand or two hands because it's slippery there, or maybe you even tried to sit on it or something or keep it underneath. And for a while, you can keep that beach ball underneath the surface of the water, right? But eventually, it slips out. It slips out one side or the other, comes from behind you, wherever, however you're trying to hold it down, it slips out. And when it slips out, it just erupts to the top, doesn't it? comes popping up through the surface of the water. And that's what happens when we try to bury our guilt. We, we can minimize, rationalize, compromise, say it's not that big deal, try to bury it. But eventually, sometimes at the most inopportune times, it comes ripping back up into the surface of our life. Sometimes we ineffectively deal with our guilt through burying it. Sometimes we blame others. We try to blame other people. And this is as old as creation itself, isn't it? As old as, as human history. Uh, so that when, when God comes and he, he confronts Adam about his rebellion, about his sin, what does Adam do? What many of us do. I try to blame somebody else. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. I mean, this is a good blame, isn't it? I mean, this is a twofer. This, this, is a, this is a double blame, right? God, I'm blaming you because you gave her to me, and I'm blaming her, but I am not the one at fault here. The reality is we've become experts at accusing and excusing, haven't we? Accusing others 
and excusing ourselves as a way to try to deal with our guilt. And it becomes part of this pattern of victimization, that, uh, that, that I'm a victim, that, uh, that I, I don't have to feel guilty because of my circumstances or my situation or the way that people treated me or, or if you were in this situation or people treated you this way, it would be all right for you to do that. And I begin to live out of this victim mentality. When you use blame, to diminish or dull our guilt. But like burying, it doesn't work for very long. We bury it, we blame others. One other version of plan B is we beat ourselves up. Instead of just throwing it out there or trying to bury it, we kind of engage in self-administered punishment. Psalm 34 kind of gives us a, a picture of that. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning and beating ourselves up manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it shows up in physical sickness. Sometimes it shows up in depression. Sometimes beating ourselves up, we set ourselves up for failure because we, we don't feel like we deserve success. And in an interesting twist, sometimes when we beat ourselves up, we're also very judgmental toward other people because we, we beat ourselves up, we feel justified in beating other people up as well. The problem with a guilty conscience is it does not know when to quit. Well, what are we supposed to do with our guilt? What is God's plan A? If all of the plan B started with B, let me give you three corresponding things that start with A. God's plan A. The Bible is very, very clear on this. The first is admit it. Admit it. Instead of trying to bury it, <coughs> admit it. Admit the reality of my sin, of my rebellion. In this same letter, First uh, John, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Remember, this is John writing to followers of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 20 says, The spirit of man is a lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts, that there is this, this searching that, that takes place as we, we begin to, to admit and own. Lamentations encourages us, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. There's an exercise that many have found helpful, and it's not necessarily something to do every day, but it may be that just if you find yourself a kind of in a spiritual dull spot or, or maybe with that, that sense of, of guilt just hanging over you, just, just spend some time. Maybe it's just a half hour or whatever. Maybe it's to take half a day, but just to go to a place where you won't be distracted and with pen and paper or keyboard if you prefer, just sit before the Lord and just say, Father, show me my heart. Show me any area where I am out of alignment with you, any area where I, I have sinned and not 
owned it and admitted it before you. And this is not for morbid introspection. This is not for beating ourselves up. It, it's for getting that stuff to the surface. Because only when it's on the surface can we begin to deal with it. And I admit it. And as I admit it, and be very specific here, not just I've sinned, but specifically, what is it that God is speaking to you about? You agree with God that that is sin. I admit it. And as I admit it, the second A is I accept responsibility for it. I accept responsibility for it. Instead of blaming others, I now own it. I admit it, I don't bury it. I accept responsibility for it. It, it, is, it is on me. It is my choice. It is something that I have done. Regardless of the circumstances or other people that may or may not have contributed to that, I own it. David models this for us. <coughs> Excuse me. In the 51st Psalm, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David, in this, in this season where he had, he had tried to, to bury his sin, he had tried to, to blame others, he tried all of these things and none of it worked and he finally came to that point of admitting it and accepting responsibility for it. My transgression, my sin, that, that he owned it. He accepted responsibility. No more blaming others. James encourages us, in fact, therefore confess to, to see the same and to speak the same about your sin, but to confess your sins, interestingly enough, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That part of this accepting responsibility may be that I not only have to come clean before God and accept responsibility, but I may need to go to another. Maybe someone that's been hurt by my sin. I need to go. I need to confess that before them. Maybe it's something from your past, something that's just been there all that time, and you need to have that trusted person in your life that you can go to and, and just begin to, to own that before them. It's been said that I am only as sick as my secrets. I'm only as sick as my secrets. And I think that's one of the reasons that James encourages us to, to confess our sins even before one another. And that doesn't mean you stand up before hundreds of people, but, but is there that trusted one? It may even be that, that you have to, to, to engage even, even a, a professional counselor or something to say, I need a safe place to be able to unpack this. Revealing your feeling really is the beginning of healing. And we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I admit it. I accept responsibility for it. No more bearing, no more blaming. And then the third A is to ask. Ask God to forgive it. Instead of spending the rest of my life beating myself up with it, I want to ask God to forgive it. Let's stay in this same letter of 1 John. If you confess, if you and I confess our sin, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of times we use that uh, verse if we're sharing our faith with someone, and that's certainly appropriate, but understand the context. It's written in a letter to believers. And right before that, we looked at that verse where he says, if any of you denies the reality of their sin, but if you confess your sin, there is a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But please stick with me because the enemy, the enemy will twist even this at times. There are wrong ways to ask for God's forgiveness. One of the wrong ways we often ask for God's forgiveness is we start begging God for it, right? It's almost like a a small child that, that figures, if I just wear down my parent enough, right? <laughs> can I have it now? 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 It's almost like we feel like we, ha- we have to keep pounding, kind of trying to wear God down. Here's the problem. God has already said in his word that he is more willing to forgive than I am to ask. He has already made provision for my forgiveness through Jesus Christ. I don't have to beg him for what he has already provided. Begging him seems like he is reluctant to forgive when everything he's done says I am willing to forgive. But not only sometimes do we beg God for it, but sometimes we try to bargain with God for forgiveness, right? Bargain with God for it. It's almost like we're gonna bribe God, right? Oh God, if you will just forgive me, if you'll forgive me, I'm gonna start tithing and I will never, ever, ever, ever miss, right? Or God, I'll, I'll even do better than that. I'll volunteer in the nursery every Sunday at church, right? Or I'll do this or I'll do that. We start to try to bargain and barter with God. Here's the problem. I don't have anything to bargain with. I mean, the only thing that I bring is my sin. There is no bargaining with God on this. He sets the terms. You don't beg God for it. You don't bargain with it. You actually do the opposite. The right way to ask for God's forgiveness is to believe. To believe in God's perfect provision for it. In Romans chapter three, Paul writes these words. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not all who beg, not all who try to bargain, For all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I have to believe his provision. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How do I ask for God's forgiveness? 
I believe. I believe in his perfect provision in Jesus Christ. I believe that that he had already made preparation for my sin and rebellion, that he is totally righteous in in what he did in Jesus Christ who came and as my substitute, he shed his blood in my place so that, that his righteousness could be credited to my account. My sin, my debt could be charged to him so that I could be set free. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I receive it. I receive it by faith. And when I do, the Bible says that God does at least four things with my sin in Jesus Christ. The first is God forgives instantly. He forgives instantly. Instantly, You don't have to keep begging. You don't have to keep revisiting. It's instantaneous. A couple of examples in John chapter 8 is as Jesus is uh, confronted, they bring this woman called an adultery and they're ready to stone her and he, he confronts them with their hypocrisy and the reality of their own sin. And as they peel off, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In an instant, in an instant, I do not condemn you. We need to hear both sides of that. Neither do I condemn you. But now go and sin no more. Don't live as one who is still captive to sin because you have been set free by the power of God's grace manifested in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you another example out of Matthew's gospel. The four friends who bring their their, uh, uh, paralyzed friend on this mat and they tear through the roof to get to Jesus and they drop him down and Jesus uh, sees their faith and notice what he says in a moment. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And, And what does he do? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, Your sins are forgiven in that instant. He didn't have anything to bargain with. He he, he wasn't begging. He was just, he was brought before Jesus and he saw their faith. And people grumbled around because they said, who is this who has the authority to do this? How does he claim this? And then he turns around and he heals that paralytic to prove that as instantly as he healed him physically, he healed him spiritually by forgiving his sin. God forgives instantly. But as we think about that, just to understand, God doesn't want you and I living under guilt but he wants us to live under grace. He forgives instantly, but he also forgives completely. He forgives completely. Notice Paul's words in Colossians 2. And you, 
you and I, every human being since Adam and Eve, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All right, this is a pop quiz, perhaps the easiest one you'll ever have because the answer is right before you, right? How many of your sins did Christ die for? Having forgiven us all, all our trespasses. Yes, that one that you've tried to keep buried for so long, that one that you've tried to minimize, you've tried to bargain with God over, that you have felt like condemns you to kind of second-class status in the kingdom. All your transgressions because of the completeness of the work of Jesus Christ. He forgives instantly. He forgives completely. But God in Jesus Christ forgives continually. Uh, there, there is this, this ongoing uh, forgiveness. My little children, John continues to write in this letter, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Really, you have been set free from the power of sin. You no longer have to live under the dominion of sin. But as we still struggle in this flesh, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever committed the same sin more than once? Mm. Even behind the mask, I know the answer's right. <laughs> Have you ever asked God to forgive and then ended up repeating that behavior somewhere down the road? And maybe you feel like, okay, he forgave me for that once, but I keep stumbling. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews gives us this picture of what Jesus is doing even now. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, thoroughly, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Even in this moment, even as I continually battle and struggle against my flesh, against the reality of living in a sin-scarred world, I have a God who in Jesus Christ is forgiving continually to the uttermost as he lives to make intercession for us. Oh, God forgives instantly. He forgives completely. He forgives continually. But I want to drive home this last one. God forgives freely. He forgives freely. It's based upon the abundance of his grace. It's that grace that Isaiah saw looking forward to the cross. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will 
abundantly pardon. Isn't that a great word, abundantly? He's not not skimpy. He's not bare minimum. Abundantly pardon. Ephesians 1, Paul looking backwards to the work of the cross. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He has this this abundance, this riches of his grace, uh, which he gives to us freely. So let me just ask you this morning, what is the secret shame that you've been haunted by? That regret, maybe you're even ashamed to think about. I want you to hear me this morning. God does not want you to live the rest of your life controlled by that guilt. But he wants you to be set free by his grace. And that doesn't mean that every consequence immediately disappears. Sometimes we still deal with some of those real-world consequences of some of our choices along the way, but it means that guilt no longer has to define me. I love the way the Psalm 32 talks about it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, is the woman, is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. My greatest need was forgiveness. God's greatest provision was grace through Jesus Christ. So I want to leave you with a statement and a story. The statement is this. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Would you sit with that for a moment? There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. August 29th, 1984. Shannon kissed her mom goodbye, tossed her books and pom-poms into the back seat of her little Plymouth champ. It was the third day of her junior year at Greenville High School. She never made it to school that morning. After driving a couple of miles down the country highway that would lead to the interstate, Shannon reached for her lipstick adjusted the rearview mirror for a quick touch-up application. And suddenly she caught a glimpse of something out of the corner of her eye and she heard a thump thump. She brought the car to a screeching halt, feeling like some animal had probably gotten out and she had hit it and was so worried about all the implications of that. And as she, she, she got out and, and made her way back 
a few feet behind her, she realized it wasn't an animal. But there on the ground was a woman with brown, curly hair and the mangled remains of a bicycle. She tried to see if there was something she could do and realized that there was nothing in that moment and this was before the days of cell phones so she went quickly to the nearest house and she made two phone calls. She called 911 and then she called her mom. And she said, Mom, come down the road. Please come until you see my car. Her mom joined her and they waited for the arrival of the ambulance which seemed like an eternity. And all of these thoughts is, are going through her, her mind. This, this, this is somebody's mother. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. How would I ever face this family for what I've done? When the ambulance finally arrived, the paramedics examined the body and quickly and matter-of-factly delivered the news. They would be calling the funeral home to pick the body up because there was nothing they could do. They speculated that she had been killed upon impact. Shannon and her mom left that scene not knowing who the woman was and went home and all these thoughts are rushing through her mind. And in a couple of hours, she received a phone call from a man named Jerry Spieth. He said he lived next door to Marjorie Jartsfer, the woman who had been killed, and that he and his pastor had driven to McKinney, Texas to tell her husband Gary that his wife had been killed. And Shannon's heart sank. The family now knew what she had done and who she was, and she figured that they probably wanted her dead too. In fact, is she wanted to be dead, and she was, had already been contemplating suicide as a way to escape this, this incredible tragedy. But the caller explained that Gary's first response after the initial shock and a few questions was to ask, how is the girl? Was she hurt? Does she know that it's not her fault? Shannon couldn't believe what she was hearing. How could this man's first response to such devastating news be a concern for her, the one responsible for his tragic loss? The caller went on to explain that Gary wanted Shannon and her family to come to their home the next evening so that their families could meet one another. An invitation that everything in her wanted to decline, but she knew that she couldn't. The next evening, feeling like she was about to face a firing squad, Shannon entered the front door of the Jartsfer's home, and she saw a big, burly, middle-aged man coming toward her, not with animosity in his eyes, but with his arms wide open. Gary held Shannon tightly as tears flowed freely under his flannel shirt, and she kept repeating, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Gary ushered Shannon into the living room where they sat together in a bay window. And he said, Shannon, I want to tell you about Marjorie's life. We served many years with Whitcliffe Bible translators. 
And there was no limit to how much Marjorie loved the Lord. She had such a close, intimate walk with God that she's actually been telling me for a while that she sensed the Lord would be calling her home soon. Shannon found it difficult to fathom that a human being could be close enough to God that they would know when their time on earth was about to expire. In fact, he said, Marjorie had even taken out additional life insurance and given her testimony at church how she was ready to leave this earth and be with the Lord any day. He continued, Shannon, this accident may have taken us all by surprise, but it was no surprise to God. He was ready for Marjorie to join him in heaven, and he chose you to carry out her fate because he knew you would be strong enough to handle this. And that is your responsibility. As a matter of fact, he said, Shannon, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy of being a godly woman unto you. I want you to love Jesus without limits, just like Marjorie did. I want you to let him use you for his glory, Shannon. You can't let this ruin your life. That incredible act of grace, that incredible act of forgiveness transformed Shannon Etheridge's life. And she has gone on to try to live in the amazing love of God that she understood at a whole different level with that encounter with Gary. And she's gone on to be the best-selling author of, uh, of, of books, including Every Girl's Battle and Every Woman's Battle. And she's a speaker, teacher, coach, helping women overcome guilt-ridden, wounded lives because she's lived it. She's lived it. Because she experienced the power of God's grace. Hear me this morning. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Father, we are in awe of your grace of your provision, of your mercy toward each of us that is greater than any amount and any depth of sin. Father, I pray that we might live every day in that grace. And I want to pause right here and just ask you just to continue to be in an attitude of prayer. And as you're praying, I just want to speak specifically that, that there may be someone here that this morning, maybe you've been religious, you probably wouldn't be here uh, if you weren't religious, but you can be religious and not be right with God, not be standing firmly and solely on his grace. And it's a grace that you don't have to beg for, you can't bargain for. You have to believe and trust him for and if that's your position today, then, then I, I just want to invite you to just say a prayer in your heart of hearts to God, entrusting your past, your present, and your future to him.
And I'm going to articulate a prayer. And if these words are kind of like what maybe you feel like you want to say to God today, then uh, adopt them as your own or adapt them to make them your own. But just cry out to God in, in this sort of way. Father, I admit the reality of my sin, that I have rebelled against your law. I have rejected your love. I have broken not only your rules, but I've broken your heart. And today I come and ask you to forgive me. I don't blame anybody else or anything else. The sin is mine. And my only hope is what you've done in Jesus Christ. So I ask you to come in and to forgive my sin, to cleanse me, to free me, to help me to live as one who is growing to love you without limits. And Father, as I have freely received this grace, help me to live in the freedom of that grace. Help me to extend that grace to others. I ask this now, trusting in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed a prayer similar to that, we want to come alongside you and help you today. We want to help you take whatever that next step would be as a follower of Jesus Christ. And the first step is to go public with your faith, to tell somebody about it, somebody that you came with, or, or uh, reach out to myself or one of the other staff. Contact us uh, on social media or online or catch us after the service. But we want to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of us who are followers of Christ, I want to encourage you, make this very, very personal. Just think about the ways you've typically tried to deal with your own guilt in the past. Do you tend to bury it or do you tend to try to blame others? Or, or how, how have you tried to do you beat yourself up? How do you do that? What is the truth about Christ, how Christ deals with our guilt that you most need to meditate on this week? We never get beyond the gospel. We need to proclaim, preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And then I'm just going to invite you, will you receive God's perfect provision for your guilt by turning from your sin and trusting God's grace gift to you in Jesus Christ? And this message is not just for me, it's not just for you, but it is to go through us to other people who, in your circles of influence, needs to hear some truths like this today. Who will you share these truths with? God's grace is greater than all our sin. It is for that reason we can give him praise. So we're going to close our time of worship by singing praise to our God together as Brian comes now to lead us.